Unless you watched particularly dark television in the early 21st century, you've likely never heard of these mythical creatures, Hexenbeasts and Salberbeasts. I think, I think they are one of the scariest legends ever. Um, like the better-known Krampus, Hexenbeasts and Salberbeasts seem to have sprung up from, uh, from medieval legends that were birthed in the forests that were outside of alpine villages where scary and dark things dwell. Uh, Hexenbeast, uh, that's an old German myth. Of, uh, it's made by two words, the old German word for witch put together with beast. Hexenbeast is a mythical creature who can morph into a beautiful human female form. She's frighteningly strong. She can cast illusions into the minds of humans. Hexenbeasts, by the way, serve royalty. They capture the enemies of the queen. When they're using their powers, Hexenbeasts are revealed in their, in their true form with hideously sharp iron teeth and, and decayed flesh. By the way... Whenever a hexen beast is cast out of the royal service uh, in the legends, they go live in the forest where they can make potions and try to trap children. <laughs> Hansel and Gretel come to mind. Zauberbeast, uh, that's German wizard, Zauber plus beast. Uh, those are male versions. Now, they are, get this, they are especially known as crafty oath breakers. Um, they, they offer these covenants, these bargains with humans, uh, but they, they fool, they trick anybody who is who is idiot enough to make a covenant with them. Uh, the Brothers Grimm recorded a whole series of tales in, in which uh, these sorcerers fooled people. Uh, they would take away kingdoms. They would take away fortunes. They would even take away children. By the way, the Pied Piper in its original form is not a positive story. Um, when they are seen for what they really are, Salberbeast, when they are revealed, they are absolutely terrifying. In fact, I started to put some images of them up and I decided they were too scary to use among you. I figured the kids would be fine, but I was worried about you, Randy. I didn't want you to have nightmares. So if you, if you want to picture the Zauber Beast, just think about what it was that lived in your closet when you were in preschool. Okay, that, that pretty well, sir. I told you, these, these are some of the scariest boogeymen ever. But here's something much more chilling. There are far more frightening things that are real. Far more frightening things that are real. The Antichrist, as revealed in Scripture, is the scariest being ever. And, and before we go into Daniel chapter 8, we should, we should stop and learn the rest of the story about the Antichrist. We've just completed our study of Daniel chapter 7. Before we get to chapter 8, and chapter 8 begins the Hebrew response to this thing called the times of the Gentiles. Before we get to chapter 8, we need to understand the driving force behind the story. That force is what New Testament passages call the beast or the Antichrist. Now, there is a lot of cultural silliness that has sprung up about Antichrist. Instead of that nonsense, let's learn what the Bible really says about him. Um, in your notes, you, you got a bulletin when you came in. Open it up. On the left-hand side, you'll see the first thing we learn about the Antichrist character. He is a counterfeit. There are many prophecies about the evil character of this person who is to come, and each one reveals him as a shadowy attempt to replace God the Son. This is almost certainly where the medieval Zauberbeast idea came from, especially the Middle German legend that Zauberbeast could transform into a doppelganger, which was a, an imitation of somebody's true human form. Let me show you some scriptures that refer to the doppelganger effort of the Antichrist as he tries to counterfeit the very real Jesus. Jesus, while he is divine, he's also fully human, right? That's why um, 1 Timothy chapter 2 says, the man Christ Jesus. Well, the Antichrist is going to be human as well. 2 Thessalonians 2 says, that man of sin. Christ, 
Hebrews chapter 8 reminds us, is going to make a new covenant with the new state of Israel. Well, Antichrist is going to try to preempt that covenant by making his own deal, his own bargain with the Jews. Daniel chapter 9 talks about that. In fact, um, on that covenant note, would you open your Bible? Open your Bible to Daniel chapter 9. Let's go to chapter 9 and read the first part of verse 27, which talks about this. Daniel 9, 27. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week. Stop there. As we'll see in a few days, this covenant uh, concerns the Antichrist and his peace covenant that he makes with Israel. Now, since a prophetic week equals seven years, we know the Antichrist is going to come up with a seven-year plan. And get this, it's actually going to stop conflict in the Middle East. It won't last, but for now, just notice, he is desperately trying to be a doppelganger of God the Son, the Prince of Peace. Okay, back to our comparison. Jesus Christ was and will be the king of the Jews. The Antichrist, in imitation, is going to crown himself. Christ performed miracles that pointed to the truth of the gospel, right? You know what Antichrist is going to do? He's going to do miracles, and he's going to use them to deceive. Love this phraseology, 2 Thessalonians 2. Deceive according to the working of Satan with all power and signs and lying wonders. Jesus served publicly for about three and a half years. Antichrist will reign for 3.5 years. Knowing, knowing that Jesus is going to return like a trump, triumphant Roman general. By the way, <clears throat> what that means is Jesus is going to ride into town on a white horse with a, with a blood red robe. <clears throat> knowing that that's what Jesus is going to do. Antichrist begins his reign the exact same way. Christ died and resurrected, right? Antichrist will as well, or, or at least it will appear that he has resurrected. Um, Revelation chapter 13 tells us he's going to receive a mortal wound, and he will miraculously recover from that mortal wound. Christ deserves universal worship. All God's people said, amen. Antichrist is going to demand it, demand worship. J.R.R. Tolkien had Antichrist in mind when he crafted his character Sauron, right? Sauron, powerful as Sauron was, he could never create. He could only imitate. He could only warp something that already was. The best he could do was try to be a doppelganger. Look in your notes. Um, Tolkien's contemporary, Arthur Pink, uh, who lived at the same time in Britain, was a pastor there. Arthur Pink says this, Satan is the master counterfeiter. And in nothing will this appear more conspicuously than in his next great move. He is now preparing the stage for his climactic production, which will issue in a blasphemous imitation of the divine incarnation. These striking correspondences show the incredible lengths to which God will permit Satan to go in mimicking the Lord Jesus. Close quote. The bottom line is to understand the rest of the book of Daniel, we need to know about the Antichrist. And Scripture says he's an imitation. He's also desired. Isaiah predicted, and Jesus indeed did not have any stately form. Jesus had no majesty. Messiah Jesus was despised. He was rejected by people. Not so the Antichrist. I think it's quite telling that in all the passages about him in the Bible, he is never seen as repulsive. In fact, he'll be worshipped by the entire world. Look, here's God's revelation about this from the Apostle John. Revelation 13. They worship the dragon. By the way, in Revelation language, dragon is Satan. They worship the dragon because he gave authority to the beast. That's another name for Antichrist. And they worship the beast saying, Who is like the beast? Who's able to wage war against it? He's awesome. They worship him, right? 
People are going to worship Antichrist, his power, his, his recovery. One of our pulpit team partners sent me a great note on this. Um, Martin McDonald wrote me this. He said, um, he said, Wayne, Satan, along with his agents, the Antichrist and the false prophet, they're not hideous appearing, but they can appear as angels of light and beauty. Paul warns in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it's no great surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, but their end will be according to their works, not their appearance, close quote. Antichrist appears attractive, but evil is as evil does. You know what Antichrist is like? Antichrist is like that guy that you dated in school, right, who appeared talented and wise and noble and wealthy. Every girl was so jealous of you, right, that you were dating him, so you let that dude take you places you shouldn't go, get you off of, of what you really should have been doing, only later to see that guy reveal himself as an empty shell of what he seemed to be, a shell full of misogyny and selfishness. Although you were a kid in school, so you didn't have the words to express that, so what you probably said is, he's just a complete jerkwad, right? That's, th look, look at Daniel chapter 9. You've got your Bible open to Daniel 9, 27, okay? This shows how the Antichrist making this, this holy covenant with Israel, he's going to turn on Israel. Look, look at the next two lines. He will make a firm covenant with many for one week. But in the middle of the week, he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering. He puts a stop to Hebrew worship, something that had been guaranteed in the agreement. Like, like that guy in school that you dated, or, or the Zauber beast who is based on his character, Antichrist is going to manipulate and he is going to violate the relationship. Now, because Jewish worship is mentioned in Daniel 9, some think that the Antichrist is going to be Hebrew. I think that's misguided. It seems to me and to most scholars that he is Gentile, not Jewish. Okay? Turn a page or so back in your Bible to Daniel chapter 7. Go to Daniel 7 and let's read verses 7 and 8. Daniel 7, 7 and 8. Daniel says, After this, while I was watching in the night visions, suddenly a fourth beast appeared, frightening and dreadful, and incredibly strong with large iron teeth. Gee, I wonder where the medieval legends got that. It devoured and crushed, and it trampled with its feet whatever was left. It was different from all the beasts before it. I'll give you the context in just a moment. And it had ten horns. While I was considering the horns, suddenly another horn, a little one, came up among them, and three of the first horns were uprooted before it. And suddenly in this horn there were eyes, like the eyes of a human and a mouth that was speaking arrogantly. Now, here's the context. There, there have been three previous beasts, and they represented different empires of this times of the Gentiles. This fourth beast is very likely the Roman Empire. I should tell you there are scholars who see this instead as the Roman church or is the, the Islamic caliphate, and I even know some who consider this to be Russia. But I don't know anyone, I can't find any scholar who thinks this is a Hebrew state. This is not a state that is friendly to Jews, okay? And at some point in the future, from that fourth state, from the remains of that fourth state, is going to arise this little horn who by scriptural parallel we know is the Antichrist. It, it is exceedingly unlikely that any future iteration of Roman power is going to be directed by a Jew. Same holds for the Roman church or the Islamic state or Russia. It is very like, unlikely that any of those are going to be led by a Jew. Therefore, I think it's safe to say Antichrist will be a Gentile. He will also be super. That's the headline on the right side of our notes. Antichrist is not ordinary. He is super. Which, of course, elicits the question that I know you're asking right now in your Batman imitation. Just how super is he? Where is Rachel? 
right? Just how super is he? Great question, Batman. For the sake of time, I tell you what, let me just let our neighbor down the street, Chuck Swindoll, address the supernatural nature of the Antichrist. He has a really pithy paragraph in his book on Daniel. Chuck says this, he, the Antichrist, will have the oratorical skill of a John Kennedy, the inspirational power of a Winston Churchill, the determination of a Joseph Stalin, the vision of a Karl Marx, the respectability of a Gandhi, the military prowess of a Douglas MacArthur, the charm of a Will Rogers. Um, if you don't know who that is, we might say the charm of a Jimmy Fallon today. And the genius of a King Solomon. In addition, he will be empowered by Satan, and his incredible capabilities will be used against God's people. That is super indeed. And get this, get this. He is going to make, the, the Antichrist is going to make a statue or an icon. Can't tell which it is. He's going to make it, some image of himself, and he's going to make it so that it speaks, and it has the power to kill anyone who disagrees with him. Look, Revelation 13, it was permitted to give breath to the image of the beast. So the image of the beast could both speak and cause whoever would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. Now, I, I know what you're thinking. In your Alfred voice that you like to use, you're asking, um, this is all very terrifying. Why do we need to examine something so scary? Right, Michael Caine. Right? Why, why do we need to look at something so frightening? Thank you, Alfred. There are a couple of reasons to study this aspect of Scripture. One is that the perusal of prophecy promotes purity. Perusal of, say that three times fast, right? You want to? Come on, let's try it. Let's try it. You ready? On the count of three, we'll do it all together. Three times fast. One, two, three. The perusal of prophecy promotes purity. The perusal of prophecy promotes purity. The perusal of prophecy promotes purity. That was awful. Trey, you didn't even try. Come on. All right, again, again, ready? The perusal of prophecy promotes purity. The perusal of prophecy promotes purity. The perusal of prophecy promotes purity. Very good. That's not bad. Um, here, here's, here's how Scripture puts it. Uh, in, in, in 1 John chapter 3, in his first epistle, chapter 3, John is describing the wonderful return of Jesus. How he's going to come back and fulfill prophecy and set up his kingdom. In verse 3, he says this, And all who have this eager expectation will keep themselves pure, just as he is pure. When we study prophecy, it, it purifies us, so we don't run from it, even though it's often uncomfortable. We study it because it purifies us. Remember, our annual vision is that we leave no stone unturned, right? We, we, we all are committing to let Scripture mold us and, and, and shape us and purify us, right? Well, that can't be effectively done without prophecy, even, even when it's scary. And Alfred, the second reason that we face frightening things from Scripture is that they make us less afraid. It sounds backwards, I know, but it's actually true. Anxieties tend to retreat when we stand up to them. And, and you probably know this, anxieties tend to grow when we try to hide from them. We must remember what Alfred taught Master Bruce. Go face your fears, right? Okay, Alfred, you go clean the Batcave while we press on to the final point regarding Antichrist's character. He is a demander of worship. You're still open to Daniel chapter 7, right? Okay, go to verse 25. Daniel 7, verse 25. He will speak words against the Most High and oppress the holy ones of the Most High. He will intend to change religious festivals and laws, and the holy ones will be handed over to him for a time, times, and half a time. He will blaspheme the triune God. He will attack and oppress those who worship God, likely because he cannot abide the idea of anything higher than himself. You know, in John's revelation, uh, one learns that this, this changing of religious customs, you know what it means? It means Antichrist is going to abolish all religion except the worship of his unholy trinity, of Satan himself and the one called the false prophet. 
Uh, the time markers right here, time times half a time at the end of the verse, that, that indicates that the last three and a half year period of this covenant he makes with Israel. During that last three and a half years, after he turns on them, the Antichrist is going to dominate and he is going to overwhelm the millions of people who are coming to faith in Jesus, the true Messiah at that time. Here's how Paul very bluntly puts it, uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, don't let anyone deceive you in any way. For that day, and, and Paul in context is talking about the return of Jesus to establish his physical kingdom. That day will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the man doomed to destruction. He opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he sits in God's temple proclaiming that he himself is God. He is a demander of worship. Now, please listen very carefully. Don't think this trait is limited to that man of lawlessness that is to come. Worship, remember, worship is to exalt someone or something to raise them above anything else in your heart as a source of security, significance, or joy. Think about that definition of worship, and I think something interesting will come to your mind. The coming Antichrist is not singular in demanding worship. Oh, he may codify it more than others have ever done. But we have all very likely seen people who, knowingly or not, demanded that others sacrifice for their worship. Demanded worship can be seen in many, many places. You can see it in a pet or in a child who always demands, look at me, look at me, look at me, I get all the attention, look at me first, right? You may have, you may have found demanded worship in a boss who acted as if he or she owns your soul. Worship is often, maybe you've seen this one, worship is very often demanded by people with a cause, or somebody who has an axe to grind. If you don't join them in unquestioningly bowing down to their issue, whatever their issue is, you will be labeled, you will be excluded, you will very often be persecuted. Anybody here relate? Have you? Raise your hand if you've ever had somebody demand your worship. Demand worship. Raise your hand. Yeah, I understand. And this brings up a really important point. Though there is one Antichrist who is to come, the spirit of Antichrist, we'll call it Antichrist with a little a, is an active part of life now. Again, John thought a great deal on these things. Look what John said in uh, 1 John chapter 2. Children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. By this we know that it is the last hour. Now, last hour is more prophetic time parlance, more language, it, it means the end of an age. So the age you're in right now, this church age, is the last hour for this stage of God's prophetic plan. And sadly, this stage is populated by Antichrist. A little bit later in his book, John addresses this. Look what he says. Uh, chapter 4, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming, and even now is already in the world. This has always been an issue in the church age, and we certainly see this today, don't we? I mean, all around us, Christians are absolutely bombarded with Antichrist spirit, just as our forefathers were. Think about America today. In America today, Christians are increasingly told to be quiet. Stop clinging to your God. That's why best-selling author Eric Metaxas said this, uh, a, a major national uh, editorial last week, he wrote this, Christians especially blanch to see religious liberty, once thought settled under President Clinton with the Religious Freedom Restoration Act of 1993. Religious liberty is under serious attack. Christians are staggered to see good souls who stand by millennia-old religious convictions portrayed as deplorable bigots. 
Democrats and many Republicans too simply look away, seemingly resigned to a culturally Marxist future in which they too may at any minute be rent asunder by woke mobs. Close quote. Think about it like this. In case you doubt, and you shouldn't, but in case you doubt whether the worship me spirit of Antichrist is active, just consider the furor over Ricky Gervais' monologue at the 2020 Golden Globe Awards, okay? Vanity Fair, the LA Times, the New York Times, they all responded very angrily to this comment made by Ricky Gervais. He said, if you do win an award tonight, don't use the platform to make a political speech, right? You're in no position to lecture the public about anything. You know nothing about the real world. Most of you spent less time in school than Greta Thunberg, <laughs> which, is, which is funny. His point was, oh, just wait, it's coming back on your head. His point was the entitled people in his audience want to speak out on everything, not because they actually know best, but because they want people to raise them up as providers of significance, security, or joy. And all we can say is, thank goodness we're not like that. We never lecture other people on social media. We, we always are content to do our work without having to be the most important one in the room. None of us ever has our head turned by flattery. Never. Or do we? Yeah, I know. I, I think I know what you're thinking. Your obvious response is, Holy Golden Globes, Batman! Is the preacher saying that we're like Antichrist and we desire to be worshipped? Yes, Robin. Yes, that is exactly what I'm saying. Actually, I'm not saying it. God is saying that, and it is true. Because when you and I live as if we need attention or agreement or respect from humans, we are not confessing Jesus. We're not. We are demanding worship. And when we get it, oh my goodness, you know, sometimes we actually get it. When we get it, we learn that it is, it's actually horrible. It doesn't satisfy because we make terrible gods. Okay, we need to shift gears from the Antichrist character to the Antichrist's activity, what he, what he does. Some of his activity we already saw in our list of, of the ways he tries to imitate Christ Jesus. L look again at the list. Uh, he'll try to preempt Jesus' new covenant with Israel by making his own. He uses miracles to deceive according to the working of Satan with all powers and signs and lying wonders, knowing that Christ will return like a triumphant Roman general on a white horse. The Antichrist will begin his reign the same way, and Antichrist will crown himself king. Now that last item, crowning himself king, that's greatly expanded on in Scripture. His royal activity has two major expressions that I think are worth a little unpacking. First, Antichrist will exercise supreme authority. Um, look over to Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11, verses uh, 36 and 37. Daniel 11, 36 and 37. Then the king will do whatever he wants. He will exalt and magnify himself above every god, and he will say outrageous things against the god of gods. He will be successful until the time of wrath is completed, because what has been decreed will be accomplished. He will not show regard for the gods of his fathers, the god desired by women, or for any other god, because he will magnify himself above all. Now, we're going to deal with details of this passage in a few days, but for now, just catch the signs of dictatorial power. He does whatever he wants. He will magnify himself above everything on earth or heaven. And maybe the most important part is at the end of verse 36. Within God's sovereign plan, the Antichrist will be allowed success in his tyranny. For the promised three and a half years, he will be a successful dictator. That means people will follow him, or, or at least follow the illusion of his power and popularity. Um, Tunku Varadajian uh, wrote a, a 
brilliant, painful article recently, and, and he said this, a dictator cannot lead through oppression alone. He must also create the illusion of public support. And uh, Frank Dictator, um, who wrote a fantastic book called How to Be a Dictator. By the way, Frank is, uh, he lives in Hong Kong, and I think he's one of the most interesting voices writing today about what is going on in Hong Kong. Uh, dictator says this, a dictator must instill fear in his people, but if he can compel them to acclaim him, he'll probably survive longer, right? I put, I, I, I shared those quotes with a friend of mine, I thought they were very insightful about the Antichrist, and, and he wrote me back, really fantastic insight. Look what he said. I mean, it's all very thought-provoking. The list of dictators throughout time is huge, indicating how the soul of mankind has an innate longing for a Messiah. The superhero popularity and cult of personality in our day speaks to this as well. Close quote. So, just as with his character, the activity of the Antichrist is nothing new. This has been the goal of many, many people throughout history. Uh, Alcibiades, Alexander, Augustus, Adolf Hitler, Augustus Pinochet, and many other dictators whose names don't begin with A. Um, but the Antichrist, he, he exercises supreme authority better than anyone ever. He also will create a worldwide command and control economy that would make Chairman Mao Green, uh, rather red, with envy. Revelation 13 describes how this is going to go down. Look, Revelation 13, and it makes everyone small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on his right hand or on his forehead so that no one can buy or sell unless he has the mark, the beast's name, or the number of its name. That's control. Even the wealthy and great must complain. No economy. Not even the Communist Party at the height of its power under the Soviet Union. No command economy has ever required the leaders to abide by the same restrictions as everybody else. The Antichrist will. He will. Uh, a generation ago, Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins had runaway best-selling books with their Left Behind series. Uh, there, were, there were flaws in those stories, but they did a really good job showing the reality of the Antichrist who is to come. One of, the things I, one of the parts I think they captured best was this worldwide command and control economy. LaHaye and Jenkins did a fantastic job showing in detail how even though many, many millions of people, Bible tells us this, are going to come to faith in the real Messiah, Jesus, during that tribulation, most will still reject Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, and they will take the Antichrist brand. It will happen. It's going to happen on a scale never seen before. I thought a bit about this, and I think maybe the Mongols came closest to this kind of absolute economic control. But let me tell you, the Mongols are going to seem like amateur hour compared to what happens when the false prophets, Satan, and the Antichrist set in motion their economic plan. And by the way, as long as we're in Revelation 13, we might as well deal with what's the issue with this tattooing that is going to occur. Verse 18, this calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast because it's the number of a person. Its number is what, everybody? 666. So what is this mark of the beast, this number 666? You ready? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. And nobody else does either. Okay, I mean that. Nobody else does either. It, it's going to be obvious then to people who have wisdom, but right now it is total speculation. I'll, I'll tell you what it is not. It is not when your Chick-fil-A receipt adds up to $6.66. Okay, that's fine. You don't need to sweat that. Now, we're introducing Antichrist so we can understand the rest of the book of Daniel, but, but I don't want to leave you hanging. So even though it's not really totally on topic, let's, let's look up here at Revelation chapter 19 and let's, 
let's learn about the Antichrist comeuppance. Okay, just so you know, here's the end of his story. Then I saw heaven opened, and there was a white horse. Man, I wish I could read this in a Johnny Cash voice. Have you ever heard his reading of this? It's fantastic. But I'd have to smoke for 45 years to get that. So um, <laughs> then I saw heaven open, and there was a white horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and he judges and makes war with justice. His eyes were like a fiery flame, and many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood. There's the red robe, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses wearing pure white linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried out in a loud voice, saying to all the birds flying high overhead, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of military commanders, the flesh of the horses and their riders, the flesh of everyone, both free and slave, small and great. Then I saw the beast, the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war against the rider and his horse and against his army. But the beast was taken prisoner. And along with it, the false prophet who had performed the signs in his presence. He, he deceived those who accepted the mark of the beast and those who worshiped its image with these signs. Both of them were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. The rest were killed with a sword that came from the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds ate their fill of their flesh. Three and a half years of terror come to an end when Jesus appears. And note, notice this. It's not his armies, angelic or human, that end the oppression of the Antichrist unholy trinity. It is the word of God from Jesus' mouth. That's why Martin Luther included a genius line in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress. There, there's a verse where he talks about Satan and his partners. Luther wrote this, The prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. Everybody read the last line with me. One little word shall fell him. One little word shall fell him. Isn't that genius? That is a beautiful capture of this. The beastly Antichrist, he seems so terrible. He seems so mighty. One word from the true Christ, and he is kaput. You know, from a bird's eye view, pun intended, this whole thing's actually pretty comical. This, these massively powerful created beings, they gather together to wage this war, only to have the creator God fulfill his word and throw them immediately into hell. That great war that, great war that is going to come is going to be even shorter than the latest U.S. war with Iran. Um, of course, that was funny, folks. Um, <laughs> of course, we're all asking the same question in our, in our uh, penguin imitation. Burgess Meredith was my favorite penguin. <laughs> what impact does this have on our lives today? <laughs> great. Uh, make you nervous when I do this? Yeah. Uh, great question, penguin. There are, uh, there are four takeaways that I think can dramatically change us. Four specific means of purification that come from this study. First, we learn to recognize evil. Looking at you, Penguin. In the Grimm's Brothers' Tales, uh, there was a simple test to see if, uh, if someone seemed human, if they were actually a hexen beast or a sauber beast. There was always a mark under the, the tongue of an evil one. Now, that's make-believe, but the idea is drawn from reality. There are ways to recognize evil. There are, in ourselves and in others. Just, just look at what we've learned today. We should hear alarm bells when we see these marks, when we see any attempt to control completely. Because I said so. I say jump, you say how hot. Ding, 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 ding. 
evil, right? When worship is demanded or expected or even desired, and if that doesn't convict you, I don't believe you're listening. When any person, any human being is seen as the answer or the savior, when, when any human is considered bigger than life, super or, or celebrity, we, we must call it evil and mortify such sin when we see it, wherever we see it. Remember what we saw in John's writings, that the spirit of Antichrist is always active even before that ultimate one arises. We, we, we can recognize evil. And, and, and by the way, that helps us with life change number two, which is that we never panic. Don't panic. In the face of horror, we tend to make bad decisions. We, people panic because it's just so scary. But it's less frightening when you know what's coming, right? For example, one of my kids hates injections. I mean, fears shots pretty badly. But this kid knows that injections are a must if one is going to be healthy in this life filled with germs. So, so when a shot has to be faced, that, that knowledge of its inevitability, that really helps this kid, as does the fact that this is for ultimate good. Look, we don't need to panic. God told us that all this is going to come. Further, we can rest in the knowledge that wickedness is not as powerful as Jesus. Amen? And he is using even horror to eradicate the disease of evil. Third thing, we refuse to join evil. Please listen carefully. Evil is not necessary. Evil is not worthwhile or healthy or good. The Taoist idea of yin-yang is nonsense, even when it's packaged in a Star Wars movie, okay? It's it just... It's logic. Just think, if evil balances with good, good's not good. Okay, this is not pure. It's got a black spot, right? It's simple. Look, this is what your great-grandparents tried to teach you through cubism, right? This is what they were trying to say through cubism. Look, if, if you take all angles as the same, you end up with nothing, right? You, you end up with this being a blacksmith somehow, right? It's absurd, it's absurd. That's not a blacksmith. That's just silly, right? Deconstruction, nothingness, is the only result of accommodating evil. Look, one last time. Daniel, you're still in Daniel. Daniel 9, verse 27, and let's read the whole verse now, okay? Daniel 9, 27. He will make a firm covenant with the many for one week, but in the middle of the week he will put a stop to sacrifice and offering, and the abomination of desolation will be on the wing of the temple until the decree destruction is poured out on the desolator. God repeats those desolation words three times so that we'll know that we must set our hearts to refuse evil because no, no matter what promises, no matter what pressure evil brings to bear, dallying with it will only lead to destruction and desolation. Finally, fourth thing, we take heart in the full story. Jesus wins. For those who trust him, the Messiah Jesus brings physical salvation as well as spiritual eternal life. Satan is thwarted. The Antichrist is unseated. All God's people said, Amen. David Wade's another member of our pulpit team. He sent me a wonderful letter about this. He said, with all the trends in our culture, it's easy even for believers to despair as we are constantly bombarded by lies and see so many believing them. But we know that when the one Daniel called the Son of Man appears, we shall be like him. And here he quotes from 1 John chapter 3, because we shall see him as he is. 
We have indeed been given, and here he quotes 1 Peter chapter 1, new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. What a blessing that no one or no event can take away. Amen? You know, the Brothers Grimm riffed off of this idea with their, uh, with their Hexen Beasts and Salber Beasts legends. Um, do you know this? In the, in the legends, the, the, the witch and warlock beasts, these horrible evil beasts, they actually could become human and be rid of their evil. It's really cool. These evil beings could be made pure. How? How could they suddenly be made pure? This was what the legend was. By having the blood of a willing human sacrifice applied to them. Wow. Where in the world could they have gotten such an idea? That's astonishing. I want you to read with me, friends. This is, these are John's opening words about the Messiah. Revelation chapter 1, verse 5. Let's just read line by line all together. Jesus Christ the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, the ruler over the kings of the earth, him who loves us and has set us free from our sins by his blood. The full story is that you and I, beastly, beastly and wicked though we are, we can be made pure. We, we can be freed from our sins because of the blood of Jesus. He died for us. He willingly shed his blood because only he could make atonement. And then, and then he rose from the grave so that by trusting him, accepting his blood applied to you, you, you can be saved from evil forever. Pray with me about that. Father, I praise you and thank you that all of us who have trusted in Jesus are rescued from evil forever. Oh, there are many in shots we have to take this side of heaven, but but we know that they're for good. And we know the end of the story. Because of that, I pray desperately for anyone studying with us, wherever they may be, whatever they may be like, that if they have never trusted Jesus as Savior, they will be drawn to you right now. Listen, friend. You, you, you have, as I do, you've got the, the metaphorical mark under your tongue. You're a sinner. We both are. You are separated from the holy, perfect God. Stop falling for counterfeits. Recognize that Jesus loves you so much. He, fully human, fully God the Son, he died on the Roman cross and he rose from the dead so that you could be saved from evil forever, even from your own evil forever, if you trust him. The transaction's always been by faith, faith alone, in Jesus alone, through God's grace alone. So right now, trust him. If you've never done so, believe on Jesus as your savior. If you just trusted Jesus as Savior, raise your hand, would you? Just you and me, everybody else is praying. Let me rejoice with you. Good, amen. Father, I pray for all of us who are believers in Christ that we will delight in knowing the full story. In Jesus' name, amen. We're gonna take our offering. This is for those who call Frisco Bible home. It's an honor for us to give to the Lord. If you're visiting, make sure you fill out that perforated card and drop it in the offering plate or in the box at the back. And Summer Sipes has some notes for us. Good morning. My name is Summer Sipes, and I'm the student ministry director here at Frisco Bible.
for each Wednesday evening during the month of February. Last year, we put the Arctic Parenting together and we were put kind of really um, cool intentional missional statements that can actually move in our, in our parents. Um, this year, we're gonna step into one of our, what we're seeing as one of our biggest challenges for parents, and that is how to parent in a culture that is very sexualized right now, and how to have those conversations in a healthy, productive way. And so we're partnering with a really cool ministry called Pure Hope Ministries, and they will be doing um, having speakers come in each week to, to help teach us how to do this together. Um, the first week we'll be talking through a foundation of how to begin having that, um, that teaching, what is God's story of sex for our families. Um, the second week is um, talking through how to have um, conversations with your family. The, sec the third week we'll be talking about how to navigate the digital age. Um, and finally, it'll be a conversation about being families in a cross-cultural way. The cool thing about these conferences, they have four words that they're gonna talk us through and, and, and their approach. Um, the first is that it's incredibly practical. Their whole heartbeat is to give us practical tools to have these conversations, be lived out, be um, all about it. The second is that it's gonna be incredibly rooted in scripture. That is where they go to, and that's where everything fleshes itself out. Um, it's gonna be collaborative. Sometimes it's gonna be a lonely conversation. And so having other parents in your community that um, have this conversation alongside of you will be incredibly helpful. Um, and we'll get to learn together and have moments to see, process some information together. And then we'll carry it into parenthood. So I wanna invite you on behalf of our family ministries, this is an event for all parents of all ages, of all stages. You should never start figuring out what your plan is gonna be too early. So if you have littles, if you have middles, if you have bigs, whatever you have, please come, please register online, you can get more information online. And I will be at the information um, booth right afterwards if you would like more information. We have all of that on the counter, but you can write times and all of that stuff. So I hope you will come. I hope this will be helpful to you and your family. Thank you, Summer. <laughs> Prayer team, would you come forward? I'm going to speak a benediction, a blessing, and, uh, and after that I'll dismiss everyone. And we would love for you to come and join our prayer team. Uh, you can come and join these wonderful folks and pray with them about anything and everything that you wish. Did you enjoy the snow this week? Thank you for praying. It was delightful. Yeah, wasn't it awesome? Yeah, yeah. in two weeks we're going to have even more, I hope. But um, no guarantee, but uh, I'm really hoping for that. So we got two months left. There's a two-month window here that could, yeah. We're, we want another eight-incher like we had a few years ago. Anyway, um, don't we all? Thank you. Yeah. Why don't you stand and let me... Uh, let me say a benediction, and you can come join our prayer team and pray for snow. Now may you and I go in the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And by his grace, may we recognize and refuse to join evil, because that makes all the difference. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, folks. See you next time. <laughs>